The Other Side of the News is the current and dynamic companion to augment the discussions from the other side of midnight. We investigate, explore, and extrapolate facts to gain better understanding of current affairs and events, and thus to bring comfort and calm to our wide international audience. It's a spontaneous commentary based on well-verified references vetted through vigilance and discernment. Our desire to awaken your imagination with questions. Questions that have not been asked, yet need answering. The other side of the news is a place where you can come and be with us in community. Learning new things, asking questions, getting compelling answers, and interesting viewpoints. It's about curiosity. We present thought-provoking questions to incite your mind, propelling you to see the world in another way. Propelling you to see the world in another way. With clear insights and fresh perspectives on global events. Tune in for a balanced view of the other side of the news. Good evening and welcome to the other side of the news. Our guest tonight is Sheila Lewis Ely, PhD. And the title of the show is Leave Those Kids Alone. Co-hosting with me tonight are Annette Driscoll and Darlene Undy and myself, Kinthea. And our dear Timothy Saunders is taking a break. He's unavailable. He's engaged with another project, so we will carry on without him, but we miss him. (laughs) Tonight, our show touches on the rights of all of us, as well as the well-being of our children. As a parent, this deeply concerns me. I'm shocked at what is going on, and more shocked by the silence and the apathy of the parents who are allowing this to go on. There are these pockets of awareness where parents are standing up for their children, but in a large part, it seems that these mandates seem to be taken as laws without any consideration for the well-being of our children. So we're going to go deeply into this conversation with a mother who decided to do something about it. And uh, it's a fascinating story. Her life is an amazing testimony to what can happen when we choose to exercise the power, the God-given power of our voice, as well as the ability to follow our intuition and hone in on the messages we received and act on them with confidence to bring about positive results. But first, I'd like to just share with you a message from our guest from last week. My background education is in uh, evidence-based medicine and research methods out of the University of Toronto graduate school there, then I went on to Oxford in evidence-based medicine, and then on to McMaster, my doctorate and postdoc in evidence-based medicine. I also did some certificate program at Johns Hopkins in Baltimore in biological warfare, weaponization of pathogen in 2001. Basically how you would take 
viruses, bacteria, etc. Any type of pathogen and weaponize them, put them on a missile, to use them for nefarious means. And I wanted to learn, as an epidemiologist, in case my city or my country, just to understand how it works and if that can be done. I was working at the WHO, Pan American Health, mid-2019, and then we started to get these cases out of Italy in January, February. These, these images on the television of people dropping dead. I'm speaking to you honestly, as a scientist, but openly. Those images out of China were fake. That was part of this game, scared the world. At that time, WHO asked me to change my position and to become a pandemic advisor to them because they were the global agency and they didn't know what was going on. Because of my training in evidence-based medicine and uh, research methods in clinical epidemiology, they wanted me to help them understand what was coming out of China and Italy. So I actually was connected to WHO on PAHO in the beginning of the COVID outbreak. And a lot of their messaging was from me. People like me, behind the scenes, we took a lot of beating from the press, hammering. Because we were calling for a balanced, age-restratified approach. Damage had already been done by Fauci and Books. It was Fauci and Books' lockdowns that harmed America, killed people. Many people died in America because of their lockdowns. It was Fauci refusers admit and to recognize the potency of early outpatient treatment. But the groups I work with now, like Dr. Pierre Corey, Dr. Peter McCullough, etc., we champion early treatment and we have, you know, the treatment plans and stuff where you treat the infected high-risk person early, prevent hospitalization and death. Fauci and they damaged us in that regard. They will refuse to recognize the antivirals. We have estimates now of the 750,000 Americans, quote-unquote, who may have died from COVID. About 700,000 would be alive today, 90%. Mm-hmm. And that's our man. When we look at the data, thousands, hundreds of thousands of Americans died because of the NIH and the CDC refusal to allow doctors to prescribe early outpatient treatment. I have many, I know many doctors, many of them across America, right now fighting their state boards and stuff for their licenses. Their licenses have been stopped or pulled. Their threatened with being fired because they prescribed early treatment that was helping their patients. I'm Dr. Paul Alexander, and uh, I have really thoroughly enjoyed the opportunity to be on the other side of the news because it has shown me to be one of the forums that's probably one of the only forums that allows one to be fully expressive and to, uh, and to share how they really feel about the events um, in the hopes of sharing with a larger audience and an exchange of ideas so that people can become much more informed and understand the situation around them for their own decision making. So I am very thankful of this opportunity for the other side of the news.
And welcome back to the other side of the news. Our guest tonight is Sheila Ely, and the show is called Leave Those Kids Alone. Co-hosting are Annette Driscoll, Darlene Undy, and myself, Kinthea, and Timothy Saunders is on a break. So a few weeks back, we had a guest on the show, Layla Sentner of the Sentner Academy, and the show was called Unmasking Critical Thinking. She was unique in that she declared that her school would have no masks and no vaccines, neither for students nor for teachers. And the children are thriving in the school. Tonight's guest, Sheila Ely, is also a political activist in the education arena and fighting for the well-being of our children. She is an inspiration and a powerhouse. She has managed to connect communities all across the country and even the world. At this time, we need educators and parents who are willing to stand up for the truth and willing to stand up for the well-being of our children and for our rights. One of the things I love about tonight's guest is she's well-versed in the Constitution and recognizes the infringements on our rights. Political activist Sheila Lewis Ely's stamina, faith, and courage are an inspiration to parents across the country. She has traveled extensively advocating for medical freedom and parental rights and was featured in the documentaries Vaxxed and Medical Racism, The New Apartheid. Sheila has helped many understand their sovereign rights and create community supportive alliances, sharing practical ways for parents to support injured children with homeschooling. Literally, she has worked a miracle in her son's life and is having a wide impact on the care and treatment of these disabled children. Welcome to the other side of the news, Sheila. I'm so curious to understand how your journey began. Can you share a little bit about it? Certainly. I got involved in homeschooling um, by happenstance. I have a son who's 22 years old now with a diagnosis of autism disorder and mitochondrial primary complex one disease. I um, realized with these three young children and all that I was doing for the school and also out in the public arena because I was out there. I was the only person out there stating that I believed the vaccines that my son um, was administered caused his autism because he was perfectly developing. I had two huge twins. Both were six pounds, eight ounces, 20 inches long. They were born healthy. So there was no reason why this should have been happening to my son because I'd never seen a child with his disability until I put myself out there. Also, there were no resources in New Orleans. I remember when the neurologist at Children's Hospital diagnosed him and he told me to expect nothing. I said, what do you mean to expect nothing? He said, this child is going to end up institutionalized. He obviously has 
Tanner's autism. I had never heard that word before, and I asked him what was that. He said he had to be born that way. So I had a huge learning curve with this autistic diagnosis. When I was looking for a placement for him, I couldn't find one that I was satisfied with. I didn't want him babysat. I was told that he would end up just being institutionalized because he was so profoundly autistic and he had so many other comorbidities. And I didn't accept that. So when he was four, I established a school. I didn't have money to do it. I just trusted the Lord. I felt very compelled to do this, not just for my own son, but for other children like him. And I started a program called the Creative Learning Center of New Orleans for very profound children affected by autism and other types of disabilities. We would have started the day Hurricane Katrina hit, August 29th. That was a Monday, 2005. It would have been our first day. But unfortunately, I ended up being homeless for nearly two years. So mm. when I got back, I started it in my cabana because I had partnered before, and it took a lot of work, a lot of hours, to partner with the Archdiocese in New Orleans. Now, why that was important? The Archdiocese at that time was the biggest employer in New Orleans. And just about everyone I knew, including myself, had educated some of our children in parochial schools, my oldest daughter being one of them. I would have done it for my other two children because Temple has a twin sister. And then I have another daughter who's only 14 months older than the twins. But when I went to the very schools that I educated my oldest daughter in, they turned those girls down because of who their brother is. No. I became enraged. Yeah, I became enraged by that. My intent all along having these late babies was to homeschool my children. But because Temple's disability was so profound, my focus had to go to him. It worked out because in the end, I put the girls in a French immersion school, which was a better fit for them. And they ended up being bilingual. And one of them, Temple's twin, is trilingual. But there was no place for him. And there's one school in New Orleans that at the time was servicing children with Down syndrome. And when I went to speak to the director, she pretty much laughed at me. She said, we can just put him here, make him as comfortable as possible if he's not violent. But what do you expect from him? He's not going to learn anything. And it was at that moment that I knew I had to do something. So I went to the archdiocese and I said, I want to partner with you to do this because you've got a program. And it's not enough that you talk about the baby inside the womb. What about from the womb to the grave? You've got to do more. So the head of Dodge Diocese at that time the, for the parochial schools, he told me, he said, okay, I'll give you a list of principles. If you can find someone willing to partner with you, go ahead and do it. Mm-hmm. And we will honor your request, but we will not finance it at all. You'll just have a safe place to land. I said, okay. He gave me this impossible list. And my girlfriend and I, went through that list, and we found a school. We found a father 
in that school who really wanted to do more and the principal who wanted to do more. So we fundraised, we raised the money to prepare the classrooms. It was a really tiny parochial school right outside of Arlene's Parish in Jefferson Parish. And we were gearing up to start. We're gonna have another huge fundraiser with some of the local talents in New Orleans two weeks after our start date, August 29th, and we were washed out. I didn't find out until that Wednesday, I'm watching CNN and I saw the father on top of the school building with his dog being rescued by a helicopter. And that's when I realized that school was washed up. I was oh. homeless. Yep, I was homeless. My family and I were homeless for nearly two years. But when I got back, I still didn't have a place to start it because the Archdiocese at that time said, we're not honoring your request anymore. We've got other problems that are bigger than educating these types of children. So I started in my cabana with four children. And I eventually moved it to a rental property that I had, and I ran that school for 10 years. And the little boy that they told me would never be able to learn, and mind you, he definitely has a huge amount of brain damage. He had grand mal seizures, all of that. That child started speaking at 13, and now he speaks in full sentences. He's calm, he's loving, he has empathy. I moved quite a few children back into regular programs. Every child that passed through that program ended up better having been there than they would have if they had not been there. So I advocate now for parents to realize their own abilities because I wasn't educated as a teacher. I didn't go to school for that. I went to school for marketing and communication. But I learned with boots on the ground through my faith, my belief in God, to do the impossible with the nothing that I had to give. And he did that for me. And I eventually went back and got a master's in curriculum and instruction for special education and then a doctorate in K through 12 special education administration. So, Sheila, you are a real testament to what adhering to the inner call of your spirit, how it can open doors in spite of all these obstacles. You persisted, and you not only persisted, but you persisted with success in these children's lives. I mean, that must feel so wonderful that I, I, I'm like awestruck the courage that you had to keep moving forward when you had the, you know, it all set up to go, and twice you were wiped out, and yet you kept going, and you achieved the result. And I really want to point out to all our listeners here that when we pay attention to that inner calling, we can move mountains. And Sheila, you have moved mountains. I really appreciate hearing from you. Can you speak a little bit more about your inner challenges as you were faced with these obstacles and and were there political obstacles as well? What would you say is your uh, resilience that got you to move beyond the obstacles that you were facing? Well, I've had many challenges. My inner challenges 
were my health. I was so sick. I was initially diagnosed with lupus. Then eventually they discovered that I had been a product of medical racism because I have muscular dystrophy that went undiagnosed as a child. But I did wear leg braces. I've always had problems with my gait, my knees, and my hips, and retaining muscle mass, something that would never happen for me. So, Sheila, I am truly amazed that along with all the obstacles you were encountering to help your children, you were also facing personal health difficulties as well. And then you were encountering individuals who had no vision as to what was possible. They had already shut down the doors before anyone even knocked on them. So we're going to take a break here, Sheila, and we'll return to our conversation in just a moment. Just remember the virus that they say that is making everybody sick. Nowhere in the world, not one country, not one institution, not the CDC, nobody has this virus that's making us sick on file. It does not exist. All the Freedom of Information Acts are empty over and over again. The virus nowhere exists. So if that is correct, and that's what they're telling us, how in the world can they be testing for it? How in the world can they be making this kind of injection to put in us to save us from this? So we need to start asking the obvious questions because by science and medicine, that makes no sense. I've never heard of that before. Are we able to purchase all those and this was supposed to be a novel infection. You start looking at the big picture, you start looking at everything, you'll find this is actually a planned pandemic. This is not actually what they're telling us in the media. So then you have to ask the bigger question, why? So we have to look closely into this and what's very concerning is that none of the manufacturers or our government will allow any of us to analyze the vials. It's illegal for us to analyze them. They won't let us look in there. Well, why? If there's nothing to hide, why can't we see what's inside these vials? Because right now we have no proof that this virus even exists. What made people sick around the world, in my opinion, is many different things. And they used a testing mechanism that was faulty and that could cross-react with anything. It could literally cross-react with bacteria, with other flus, with other colds, false positives. So that's meaningless. So there's no proof of this supposed, you know, bad, weird virus affecting everybody. This is Dr. Carrie Made on the other side of the news, and I'm excited to be here because we have freedom of speech and no censorship. You've been listening to the other side of the news. 
Our guest tonight is Sheila Ely. The show is called Leave Those Kids Alone. So, Sheila, we were just talking about how the medical profession did not recognize the potentials of your son and basically had written him off. And I'm curious, how did you deal with this? How did you um, move forward on hearing such devastating predictions for your son? I think for me, my ignorance was my strength because I hadn't been educated as a teacher or special education teacher. I didn't come to my son's disability with all of these pronouncements of what he could or could not be or milestones that he had to meet. Specifically, if he didn't speak by seven, he wouldn't talk. So I didn't buy into any of that. Also, I did not believe in the window of opportunity that I heard from six other specialists who told me he'd have this window of opportunity. If he didn't meet this milestone by then, he was not going to meet it. And I also did not buy into the need that he had to go beyond a fifth grade education to end up being able to be communicative or that he needed to learn the picture exchange program to be successful within his community. I felt the need to teach him whole word sign language. And I remember when I was in high school, I went to high school with a small group on the second, on the third floor of my school, high school, who were deaf and mute. And these kids communicated. I used to watch them get on the school bus. I used to watch them when they came to our dances and all of our functions, and they were happy. And I was so fascinated by them, I wanted to learn sign language. So we would have these enrichment courses after school, and I took some sign language courses so that I could communicate with them. Well, when I went in to communicate with them, they were not interested. Maybe I was not fast enough, I don't know. But they had friendships. They had laughter. And then I discovered that they even had a college that they could go to on the East Coast. Hmm. And this is what came back to me when my son threw the picture exchange program away, when he threw ABA on the floor, and when I went in to see if he understood applied behavior analysis, he didn't. He he had memorized road skills, but he did not truly know the information. So what I did, I hired a certified sign language interpreter to come in and work with my son. This was the first time he'd ever worked with a autistic child before. He worked for me for six years, and then he went on. He became so proficient at all of the modalities that I decided we were going to use because I got certified in a lot, a lot of things that would not be available in other programs like mine. I thought outside the box. I did not see what a child could not do. The possibilities were always open. And I kept them open, no matter how profound a child was who came to my program. I want to really acknowledge that that is the key. You've just outlined the key for all of the obstacles that we're facing in the rest of our lives as to what to do about this situation or that, is to hone in on 
not being overeducated, we found that a lot of, I'm going to have to reconstruct that sentence, uh, is to hone in on our core intent and our truth and not to be blinded by a pre-education or assumptions that are made by the experts <laughs> who sometimes are not really experts. They're just uh, puppets. And um, I know that Annetta would like to jump in here with some questions. Annetta? So, hi, Sheila. This is Annetta. And I, hello. I'd love to get into a few things with the, uh, with with what you've done with school, with the education and also politically, because I understand that you've been politically extremely active. And I am very much interested in, in two, two topics here that we can get around to. One is how parents can help educate their children, it, yeah, even if they're not homeschooling, but also I want to talk about homeschooling because I think there's this, this uh, erroneous perception that says, you know, I have to have all these qualifications or it's going to take all this time, both of which are incorrect. So I'd like to talk about that. And the other thing is the political. So let's start with the uh, the actual commitment to homeschooling, what, what does it take and, and how is it different than normal school as far as collapsing time and things like that? Homeschooling is one of the best ways, in my opinion, you can educate your child. When you look at the public school system, you're looking at a system that is not free and is definitely not appropriate. Within a six hour span, you may get two and a half hours of instruction. And the rest is teaching to the test. It's about keeping their accreditation up. Money's coming in by having a child in a seat. And if you have a child that has learning disabilities or really profound special needs, it's just a babysitting, a babysitting arena where that child is isolated, for the most part, even from classmates. And when you do this to a child, there's really no learning that's being done. Also, if you have a profound child, there's another side of that coin. You can't take that child and throw that child into a regular mainstream classroom thinking that if you put that child there, and this is the thought process of educators, they will immediately start emulating what so-called typical children are doing. First of all, you're setting them up for failure because within a child who may be unavailable to communicate with you verbally or has so many other outside um, disabilities that they don't look as though they're there, they are there. There's a child thinking within that that body, whether it looks that way or not. And so you put a child in a typical environment, expecting for them to keep up, not only academically, but to somehow make friends with the behaviors that they have and the disability that they have. You've just told that child, I am not like those children. That makes me stupid. That makes me inferior. And what I've seen transpire from that are children who develop even more adverse behaviors because they want a way out. They're frustrated. You know, that's really interesting to hear you describe that. 
my own experience with school was on the other side of that coin where I was so bored with school. It was so uh, not tuned to who I was. And I ended up being pushed forward in grades. And then I was, of course, made fun of because I was smaller and, you know, physically less developed because I was quite a bit younger. And, uh, you know, and, and, and what it did, instead of saying that I was dumber, it made me feel like I was weirder, you know, like it's, it's the same result, essentially, in that. No, it is the same result because yeah. what people don't realize, I don't know if, it, if this is the way education is set up in Canada, but in America, even those who are gifted get accommodations and an independent educational plan. So they fall under the special education umbrella within a gifted program. And if you have a child who is gifted in a classroom with the average, they are going to be bored. And you still may get those behaviors that you're not looking for within that child. It doesn't mean that that child is a true behavioral problem, but that child is so bored. And the the child doesn't come with the ability to have the patience to wait out and, and, and see what you're going to do as educators. They need it now. They need it to happen for them as they are there, and they need friends like them. You can't take a child who operates at seven on a fourth or fifth grade level and put them in fourth or fifth grade. They're too young for that. They still need their peers to play and interact with. And we've taken play out of school. We've taken the arts out of school. We've taken PE for the most part out of school. They're not academically the same. So how can you educate them the same? Secondly, if you don't have all of these extracurricular activities within the school, when will they be able to socialize, certainly not on the playground, because the average kid will look at the smarter kid and say, you're weird, you're a nerd, because in their own minds, without having the ability to express it, they feel inferior. That's absolutely true. I, I, I can tell you firsthand, and I ended up, you know, uh, graduating. I, I started college when I was 15, but before I started college at 15, which was the wrong thing to do, I will tell you, uh, but, uh, you know, that was another whole story, but I graduated in the bottom third of my class, and I was not, I shouldn't have been in the bottom third, I'll just say that, right? Uh, right. And that will tell you how, how profound that that effect is to be not normal. And there's no reason that we should have not normal. This idea, I, I, this is just me, I'm not an educator, but the idea that we all, because we're a certain age, we all do the same, that's absolutely rubbish. I mean, how can you possibly say that if you look at, at anybody, uh, even, even as adults, just classifying by age doesn't even make sense, right? We don't do the same things at the same age. <laughs> it doesn't make sense at all. I have a granddaughter that's going to be five tomorrow. And she already operates mathematically and um, literally on the fifth grade level. She is so smart. She is not going, as I've told my daughter and my son-in-law, she will never fit into a typical classroom. You yeah. won't even find it in a private school. Your option is homeschooling. And when you tell people about homeschooling parents, they say, well, I'm not equipped to do this. Who's better to do it than you? Life learning is not about 
just academics. You can teach math, all types of math, adding, subtraction, fractions, cooking with measurements. That's right. That's right. My dad did that, actually. I, and my listeners to this show know I talk about my dad a lot. He was absolutely fantastic. And I, I always say, you know, all of my really great learning happened from experiences. It was experiential learning. It was not memorization and regurgitation That's to right. get through a test. It was about the experience of it. And it doesn't take long. You, you, don't, you don't go through this long and rigorous course to learn these things because you're engaged and your mind is fully hundred percent there when you're having these experiences. Plus the memory of it's there. I mean, I have lifelong memories of these things. And I say, I've been looking at, I've been looking at this from a little different viewpoint because I'm very interested in the, in the uh, nomadic lifestyle and I don't have children, but a lot of people do that are, are uh, doing that nomadic lifestyle and they, they homeschool their children and their children seem way happier than normal, much more engaged, much more astute, way ahead of the curve. And I look at them and I think, well, of course, they're not learning about the Grand Canyon. They're actually, they're going to the Grand Canyon and crawling around in it and seeing the difference in the geology and learning about geology at the same time they're experiencing it. And it's a completely different thing. And I'm not saying that everybody can have that experience, but what I'm saying is, is that the engagement, the amount of time that one puts in with a child when they're engaged is, is actually fractional to this thing. And, and you're, you know, the way you describe the, the school, the education system was six hours, right? The reason, you know, and, they, and people found this with this um, online learning during the pandemic, right? They, they're like, well, what, what are they doing with my child for six hours a day? They're not, they're certainly not learning, you know? And that's, that's when it was the wake up call. It's like, whoa, what happened here? And what are they teaching them? You know, what's this, what is this curriculum they're teaching them? I, this isn't something that, you know, and I, I can tell you that I, I, I hear this. I had, uh, I had uh, social studies, which used to be civics. Um, I did not have critical thinking that luckily I had a parent that taught me that. But I was lucky enough to go to a school system that had arts and, and had all the other, uh, you know, music and art and, and athletics and all of that. Athletics was a nightmare for me, but, you know, that I had those options and now I look at children and they, they don't even have those. And, and, you know, on top of that, they're torturing them with masks and all that. I won't even go down that route. But, but the point is, is that this time that parents are sending them, them to school, they're thinking that they're actually learning for that many hours a day. And it's not even close. It's not even in nope. the same universe. It's not. Know. And then you take a child and you take out all the, I, I was like you, I had art, we had crafts, we had um, trades in the school that I went to, so I learned it all. And I can tell you what something like that does. I came from a family who, I call it, grew up in third world America, because there's such a thing over here, whose parents came out, out of the cotton fields of northern Louisiana. And I'm only um, two generations removed from slavery because they lived to be so old. So my parents arrived to New Orleans not knowing anything more, and they put us in these schools. They trusted the teachers to do what they said they were going to do, and as children back then, you didn't complain about anything. But I remember going to kindergarten, and when I was in kindergarten, it was only a half a day. You went for a half a day just to play and socialize. It was 
Yeah, that's right. The times of my life because we had all of these dolls, we had toys, we had kitchens and um, make-believe costumes, and we sung songs. We were not asked to read, write, and memorize. And yet, the educational system now, with the no child left behind, all children in the same classroom, there's no hardly any PE, no art, no drama, no music. All of this is taken out, all for a college academic curriculum for a child with special needs or just for any child. So when is the processing time? Because children need for every 20 minutes of academics you give, you need to give them 20 minutes of processing time. When do they get to process all of this information? We know that playing helps the brain to develop music. Drama, anything that's related to the arts, painting, crafts, all excite a certain area of the brain and helps it to work better as a whole. We're not monolithic people, and children shouldn't be treated like little machines who need to punch out information. We have computers for that. It shouldn't be children. So, yeah, where where are they getting all their critical thinking? You can't even get critical thinking if all you do is stuff it, stuff it, stuff it in there. Well, you're not teaching them to think because you haven't given them a chance to process any of the information so they can think for themselves. And if a child asks a question that's not related or related roundabout to a certain subject, they're cut down. If they question information that's on the test, or I'll give you an example. When my daughters moved on from the French program to a private program, they only knew how to do math the French way. They had, had years of it. And so the math teacher told me that she was giving my daughter Temple's twin C's. So I go to the school. I said, why are you giving her C's? The information is correct. Well, she didn't do it as I wanted her to do it. I said, well, she's been in a French school. My question to you is, is the information on the page correct? She said, yes, all of it's correct. I said, so what's the difference in how she got there if she got there correctly? You have to think outside the box. I want all of these grades changed to the grades she deserves because you should look at how she got there and then have a conversation with her as to how she got there, because maybe you might learn something that you didn't know before. That's absolutely right, right. So, yeah, so I look at this, and I, and I, and I, can, I can go back to my own personal experiences and my observations of, of people. And one of the things that I, I, I like to talk about, and we like to do this on the show, we like to talk about the solutions. And I know that there's people out there that are like, have the children they they would it's it's overwhelming for them to consider this idea and if you were talking to one of those people on an individual basis what would it be that you would talk to them and say this is what you actually need to have and this is how you can do it and i know that's a that's a loaded question because we're on a short short leash here with time but you know what would you do to encourage them and advise them in that area i've spoken to a lot of parents mostly mothers 
And this is what I tell mothers. We have seasons in life. And when we approach the season of raising our children, you have to ask yourself, who's going to love that child more? Me or the public school system or even the private school system that I'm paying all of this money to? What's more important at that time? Is it possible for you to make sacrifices to cut back to homeschool your child? And homeschooling isn't what you're imagining it to be. Homeschooling is not you sitting at a table with your child, getting them to do the same thing that they're doing in a public or private school. Homeschooling is unschooling. It's the ability to teach your child the basic things that it needs to know. For instance, we all need to understand how to communicate. We all need to know how to have relational um, communication and to develop relationships with one another. We all need to know how to add and subtract so that we can maneuver in this world. A lot of children will go way beyond all of that. And I'm speaking specifically as a mother of a special needs child. But even with a typical child, you have to look at these things. How do you understand experiences? How do you gain experiences? How do you gain the knowledge to maneuver in the world that we've been brought into? And that goes to the parent. You can never expect for a system to love your child more than you do. And what I say, even though we pay all of these taxes, state, federal, and local taxes for these schools, it is not worth it at the sacrifice of our child's development. Because the six hours you sent a child or seven into a school system, those are the people that are having the most influence on your child. Why not you? And you do not need a degree to educate your child. There are tons of books to help you along the way. There are co-op groups. You no longer have to homeschool isolated as if anyone ever had to. I think when people think of homeschooling parents, they think of the Duggars, someone who's had 19 children it was best to have them all at home because they had their own playmates with them. Schools now is not even about play anymore or socialization. No one is teaching your child to do that. You have to do that. But what you can do is look at where your strengths are. Are you pretty much an organized mother? Even if you're not organized, even if you're eclectic, a child can learn from that. And you can partner with other parents so that you can develop these friendships, not just for you, but for your children. Get together and do field trips together or do co-op studying together. What's your strength? What's the next parent's strength? You don't need to be outside of your community to do it. I know here in Texas, we have a huge homeschool population, and it's growing by the day. Parents who are involved in uh, their church community, they're given space within these churches because that's what a church is for. I mean, if it can't give you a little space to bring the least of those into the building, to be educated, why are you serving under that particular pastor or that organization? It's not worth it to you. So here we've got all these parents who've come together. One may have strength in math. One may have strength in science. And, and science and math is not about 
just learning the timetables and a bunch of numbers of calculus that you may or may not ever use. It's about applying those skills. Life is about applying skills. Even when you finish college, you're supposed to go out there and apply your skills. Start it young. You can do it. And that's what I tell parents. Get over your fear. There is no such thing as that emotion not given by God. That was one created by man that we're seeing now with the whole pandemic. I am thinking about this. Like, So I like to cook. And my father was a fabulous cook. And he taught me a number of things. But one thing is, you know, one of the reasons I'm so good with math is that there's some cooking. It was those fractions. Right. <laughs> and uh, and then uh, he taught me how to sew. And I would calculate yardages and how much to pleat fabric right. and all this stuff. And it's like, it was the application of the information that allowed it to stay in my mind and make it, make it living, make it real, make it workable. And that's what I see from the homeschooling side of it versus the you know, this is a fraction and blah, blah, blah in, in school. I, I don't see any application here. That's um, right. And I, that's, I mean, I'm, like I said, I'm not a parent, but I, I'm only in this observational seat, but that's what I see as a major, major, major difference. And that's what I talk about experiential versus yeah. Uh, memorization and regurgitation. Um, well, I took a bunch of boys who would be considered really profound and taught them algebra by cooking every day. They cooked their own lunch at the school. Mm-hmm. And we taught them algebra. My son knows fractions like the back of his hand, even though he operates from the development of an eight-year-old. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I believe it. You know, and uh, like I said, these, these experiences, they stay with you. They, and, and I think part of it's back to that idea that you were talking about, about the processing speed or the processing time. It, it you you can't just dump the stuff in and not actually have some kind of uh, application for it to stick. It, you know, it, it'll be gone by next week if you don't apply it. That's and right. So we're we're at this place where we're we're sending our kids off to the gulag basically for mm-hmm. however many hours a day. And you know, it's another show to get into the amount of nefarious things that are going on in many schools. Not necessarily a safe place. Um, and it certainly isn't a safe place for a mind, uh, a young mind, I don't think. Uh, it's not. And I've heard parents say, well, I have to work. That's fine, because parents, there are many parents who must work to provide food, raiment, and shelter. But you can still homeschool. You get with a co-op of parents, and you take off Monday to teach a group of three or four kids around the same age, that Monday, the next parent may take off Tuesday instead of you having the whole weekend off, make the sacrifice. And then you've got another parent who can do Wednesday or maybe even Thursday and Friday if she's an at-home mom or he's an at-home dad. You can do this. Stop asking a system to love your child as we see they don't. It's out in the open how much they love children. And that's not at all because they're trying to usurp your authority over your child's body as we speak. Absolutely. Take back their God-given authority. The child that you brought into this world or you adopted was a gift to you from the good Lord above. And you've got a charge to keep. And your best charge is what goes into their bodies 
and into their minds. Sorry to jump in here, but we need to go to a break. You're listening to the other side of the news. Our guest tonight is Sheila Ely, co-hosting Arnetta Driscoll, Darlene Undy, and myself, Kinzia. We shall return. I wrote a couple of weeks ago that says, am I being selfish? And I said, absolutely. But I'm not doing this for me. I'm doing this for my grandchildren and my grandchildren's children. I see the loss of rights and freedoms. I've lived long enough to know what's happened here, and I cannot stand back and simply comply. I'm going to resist those measures with everything that I have, uh, emotionally, psychologically, physically, legally, I cannot allow our rights and freedoms to be taken from us. We have to stand up for them. And this is where I say that we have to become adults. We have to stand up for our rights and freedoms. We can't ask for them. We have to demand that they be honored and respected. To me, the masking is part of the strategy of totalitarian tiptoe. We just keep encroaching on you, and it's just a little bit worse than it was yesterday. And most people don't see it, but we see it. And that's why this program and the work that you guys are doing is so important. comes from Vaccine Choice Canada. I just want to reach out and express my gratitude to other side of the news for all that you guys are doing to empower humanity and bring us to a higher state of consciousness. Uh, the time that we shared together was a real pleasure, rich conversation, and I know that all of you are uh, higher conscious beings who are part of the solution. I just want to express my gratitude to Cynthia, Timothy, and Aneta and you program the other side of the news. You guys are great. Side of midnight.com talk radio with pictures on demand liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and non-linearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought join club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month 
33 cents a day. Talk radio with pictures on demand. The other side of midnight.com. As you continue to work on yourself, the tribe comes forward. They'll come right to your door. So just keep doing the work and it'll come together. Yep, as you increase your frequency, then you become more mature in your manifestation abilities. Then your other higher senses and gifts come online and then you have more power to make your world different and better and how you want it. And so that's why working on yourself is so important because then you're going to create the reality that you want rather than get sucked into the dystopia that's being created by the negative or shadow side. We're becoming uh, Renaissance men and women where we have multiple skill sets and we can dance from science into art and we can use both sides of our hemispheres and we can realize how much we have to really offer and uh, grow into. And this is what's happening now. This is where we're headed into a really beautiful place. So we can rejoice in that despite the fear, despite what it looks like on the outside. This is how disease transforms. The mess in the chaos is necessary in order to see what you have before you so you can clean it up and just make decisions to change your reality. If you don't see it, how do you know it's there to even be changed or if you ignore it, right? Then how can you make the differences? You can't. So the mess is before us, accept our mess, and now know that that's part of empowerment to be able to see and to be able to transform it. Hi, this is Amanda Vollmer, and I was on the other side of the view and I really enjoy my time discussing deeper topics and really getting to the heart of truth and the things that matter in this world and what we are doing and why we're here and and what we're heading towards. I really recommend listening in and and learning, uh, expanding your awareness and your knowledge. It's important and these are the times to do it and we're being asked to pay attention and to challenge ourselves and uh, think beyond beyond the box. And welcome back to the other side of the news. Tonight our show is called Leave Those Kids Alone and our guest is Sheila Ely. Annette, you were just about to ask a question when I had to stop us for break. Please continue. That brings me to the next part that I wanted to talk about, which is the more political side of this and what's going on with, you know, legislatively and the whole uh, concept of having the money follow the child, the developments that are going on there what you're doing politically, and then finally, and you can take this in any order you'd like, and then another thing I'd like to be sure we bring up is how can parents 
and how can people in general become more politically involved and, and make a change in these areas. So take any of those that you'd like. <laughs> we are at this point in life because we passively sat back and allowed elected officials to speak for us without knowing what they're saying about us or speaking to for us. We now are at a point where we have to take back our power. Here in this country, this is a country established for the people, by the people. And if there's a political figure who doesn't understand the Constitution, they need to be voted out. Or we need to physically be a part of our legislative process. And how do you do that? When your legislators are in session, you need to be aware of any bill that's going to adversely affect your livelihood, your family unit, your environment, and your community, and get active. We all can participate and be active now. We I agree. Yeah, and you know, and another thing I'd like to point out is a lot of people are realizing that they can actually fill those seats, those legislative seats, those school boards, city councils, county boards of supervisors, things like that. They can do this. It doesn't take a big political background. And in fact, we're learning uh, that many of these people have been placed into these seats uh, by NGOs that are funded by people that we don't agree with. Uh, the Soros, you know, Open Foundation, they always have great names on them too. They always have these wonderful names like Democracy Freedom or whatever, you know. But uh, a lot of these groups, you know, we, we've been, we've been taught, oh, we don't have the qualifications to, to be on city council or school board. That's not true at all. You know, we're all qualified. We're all qualified because it's your community. So what happened in New Jersey? A truck driver who only spent upwards of $200 on his campaign won the seat from a very prominent legislator who didn't want to concede, but he had no choice. The man won by landslide. Mm -hmm. We have the power to enact change. We're not helpless and we're not hopeless. We make ourselves that if we perform like sheep, we put the masks on, we quietly do whatever they say do, even when they change the rules, get the shot and you can go back to life as normal. No, you can't go back to life as normal. Now you put your mask back on and you're gonna need a booster. You can't leave the country unless you can prove you had the vaccine. Who are these people? Ask yourself that. Many of them are unelected too. They're placed there by these people that are quote elected. And I put big air quotes on there because we know from the election situation we have that they most likely are not elected, that they have been placed. And then they in turn are appointing things like the health commissioner, which is an unelected position, or who is the who? Who is the who and who is the UN and all this other rubbish? And who is, you know, the fraud she, right? These people are not elected officials. They aren't even officials. They aren't even with government organizations. But 
understand that these are, are non-governmental organizations. They're NGOs. Uh, they, they may sound official, you know, the Federal Reserve. Uh, it, it's not federal, and it doesn't have anything in its reserve. So there you go. So people need to, to start uh, educating themselves, speaking of education. Be, you know, educate yourself as to what's really going on here, and do not comply, do not comply, and do not comply. That's right. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Well, here in my county, um, we had walk-ins. We had a group that we organized that started out with five people, and it grew to 40,000. And we don't have to recreate the wheel. Teach true history. Teach your children the truth about what your country has done and what it continues to do. Don't white coat it, whitewash it, or wipe over it. Tell them the truth, because when you place history, true history on the back burner to forget about it, you will repeat it. There must be a remembrance so that you can have a present and find your way into the future. And they did sit-ins in the civil rights movement. So we did walk-ins. We walked into all of these big organizations, these these stores and companies without a mask and they had to put us out and every weekend we chose a store to walk in until we all decided that masks were optional. We wrote in to the governor and told him, here is the information on masks. Fauci said it from the beginning, they don't work. Here's what the National Institute of Health says about masks in the mask mandate till we finally got it ended. Well, and then, you know, how about the education about legally? What is a mandate? A mandate requires that people be in agreement for it to be enforceable. That means I have to agree with that mandate in order for you to enforce it upon me. I don't agree. Exactly. I'm not complying. It's not a law. And, and you know, and you know, uh, we've talked about this many times on this show, but you know, the administrative branch the reason we have three different branches of the government in our constitution, article one, article two, and article three is so that we don't have this overriding the, you know, the pretendency there that we have in supposedly Washington DC, which I doubt, but it's another whole story. Um, that whole thing, uh, he, he has no authority whatsoever to make anything. That's why it's called a mandate. It's not a law. And it has to be a mandate because he doesn't have any authority to do any of this. And, the courts, which are corrupt, but there's been some movement. And even this week, we had across the board, the, where, where, where is, I just put a thing up on my uh, uh, Telegram channel today, a map of the United States, all the states where Biden's mandate applies. And it's none of them, okay? It's none of them, people, because uh, he has no authority. So what we're having to do is they're running over us without rule of law, without following the Constitution, we have to fight back going through the lawful ways and to, to say, no, we're not going to take this. We're not going to take it in the shorts anymore. We're going to fight back through our legal means and take this back into the court systems and keep taking it back like Mike Lindell is. Just keep taking it back until we get an uncompromised situation here. And, we, and it may or may not happen, but I'll tell you, across the board, we're seeing so much movement forward on all of this stuff, media, mass media and social media, all changing right now to our advantage as free American citizens. 
Well, so, the biggest lie that's ever been told is that we're a democracy and we're not. We are no. public. And that's if right. one disagrees, it cannot go into law. That's right. Yeah. So would you like to, like, I know this is a little bit off topic, but how about you talk about what the difference between, uh, uh, this is one of my favorite topics, so you hit on a good one for me, uh, the difference between a republic and a democracy, since so many people have been bamboozled by that one. A republic means that you are an individual created by your creator to serve who you want to serve, operate as you want to operate, have the happiness and freedom that you feel is suitable for you and not a whole group of people. A democracy depends on the whole group deciding what they want and coming to terms with that. And because they've lied all of these years that we are a democracy, we are a democracy, we are a democracy, and took the Pledge of Allegiance out of school that tells you to the republic for which we stand, people are so confused as to who we are and what we are in this country. But we're a constitutional republic, and everybody everybody needs to have their little pocket constitution. It's a short document. That's right. Pocket it's constitution, a, you need it. Yeah, it's a powerful one. I'm telling you, because when, when you get... You know, you get up against some of these thugs, and they are—they are thugs. They're criminals. They're just—they're just criminals. And like most criminals, they aren't all that bright. Okay, so you can outdo them. And uh, but you know, your your pocket constitution is your is your armor in this case. Well, and that's you know, just my simplistic way of explaining it because I think when I tell people explain it that way, they get it better. They understand it. Oh, mm-hmm. and we are. All you know, in agreement, and the majority wins. No, we don't. No, we are. We are also. You know, we are set up as a confederation of sovereign states. These are sovereign right. nation states. That means that it comes from the bottom up. And I've I've said this before, and I'll say it again. Our power is from. We are the people. We have all of the power. We choose right. to give a little portion to our county, which gives a little portion to our state which gives a little portion to our federal. That means the federal has the least amount of authority and the least amount of place to have any kind of legislative stuff over us. Uh, and and you know, they're they, trying to take it all with financial incentives to businesses, mm-hmm. to keep people masked, to enforce a vaccine mandate. And no one is thinking that that's just a mandate, but what I hear all the time, I need my job. I don't have the money to legally sue. So what am I supposed to do? Well, if you're a Christian, you stand on God's word and you walk away because he will always provide. He said he's never seen the righteous hungry, nor it's seed begging for bread. Now, either you believe that or you don't choose. That's right. So, and I say to people too, Look, if you think you're taking the vaccine so that you can provide for your family, think about how well that will work when you're dead. Because that's what you're looking at. It is it is a lethal injection. It's just a matter of time. And we know that. We've known that. We've talked about that on this show from the very beginning. We've been on, I think, since March of 2020. So this is not a this is not a mystery. This is not an unknown thing. So you know. Do not comply. If everybody would take off their mask, if everybody would just go back to normal, if they'd stop taking that stupid faux test that has 
you know, it has no credibility whatsoever. It has, it means nothing. Stop taking the test. Stop complying with the mask. Just go on with life as is the best you can. Do not comply with any of this. If we all did this in mass, there's nothing they can do. We're there very few, and we are many, many, you know. And And why do you have to fly anywhere? You've got Skype, FaceTime, Zoom, you name it. You can communicate with anyone, anywhere, something you couldn't even do 30 years ago. Well, I'm a little ouchy about that because I, I have a birthday coming up and it was, I had a trip planned for the last 10 years and I'm not able to do it. So I'm pretty ouchy about that. Well, um. <laughs> if we don't boycott, nothing will ever change. They didn't oh, no. integrate because they wanted to integrate. They integrated because they lost money. When you hit them where it hurts, that's how you win. Nothing has ever occurred in this country that didn't call, call for sacrifice. Even bloodshed. We can do things peacefully now, but we've got to be willing to take that stand. And you have to know what, you know, you have to educate yourself and know what that stand is and how to do it. And if you don't know, there's so many resources. Um, There's freedominaction.net. That's a great resource. Uh, There are all kinds of uh, places to find information. You know, it's not going to be on Google. Google censors even what you can find. You know, well, it won't. It, there are two groups I'm associated with, Children's Health Defense.org and StandForHealthFreedom.com. You go to either one of those groups and you can be taught how to become an advocate, how to make change where you are. Let your footprint matter where you are. You don't have to go out anywhere beyond where you are, your own community. But if you make it matter in your community and there are others making it matter in their community, collectively we are united as a whole. That's perfect. That's perfect. So why don't you say those names again? And I'm sure we're going to include them on the the page below, but say them again so people can. uh, Children'sHealthDefense.org. We have many lawsuits against school board against the federal government so we are fighting for you and stand for health freedom where you can go and learn about advocacy how to apply yourself how to talk to legislators what's going on in real time out here instead of the lies that you're going to get from cnn or cnbc that's right and freedominaction.net is my friend, Lewis Harams, who he's been on our show several times. And that one also gives you a lot of resources of things you can do locally, ways you can red people, red pill people, ways you can stand up, and community uh, grassroots uh, activities so you can find what's going on in your community. There's, and that, that's only the tip of the iceberg. There's three really good resources right there for people. There's no excuse. It's up to all of us. We need to learn what we were given. We were born into an absolutely wonderful situation. We need to take advantage of that. We need to know what our constitutional rights are, and we need to take action. And the action is at a grassroots community level. That's right. So, we're not victims. Yeah. We're empowered because we are the people. And this is true all over the world, too. So this is, a, this is a worldwide event. This is a worldwide World War III 
were in it, and it's, it's a different kind, but it, it's as real as can be, and people, unfortunately, are suffering and dying, so don't take this lightly. Uh, and if you think, if you look at Australia and you think that it can't happen here, uh, think again, that's the test, that's the test place, uh, and Canada's right behind it, so... With that, I'm going to pass it over to Darlene because I know she has a lot of questions also. Oh, my gosh, Sheila. I am sitting here on the edge of my seat. Um, it's such an amazing amount of information, and there are a couple of things that have stood out. Um, I mean, there's so many things that stood out, but a couple of things that I'd really like to have you deepen into for the audience today, Sheila, and that is, as you said, let your footprint matter, and we have the power to enact change. And can you really direct this to parents that really feel that they don't have the power? Like, where did you find that within yourself? I mean, it sounds innate that you've had this all along, but what can you say to those that feel that they have perhaps given their power away, and how can they take it back? For me... I believe I've had it all along, but I became so enraged by the six specialists who told me to expect nothing from my son. And my husband said, that's it. You've heard that enough. How many more times do you need to hear that? What are you looking for? Are you looking for someone to tell you something different? I said, yes, I am. He said, well, darling, I don't think you're going to get that. And those words stuck with me like glue. And all I could think of, I love him so deeply, but I can see around me, none of these people have a vested interest in my son, but me. It is up to me as his mother to do all that I can to correct this wrong. And within me, instinctively, I knew the vaccines had done it because I remember when he had his five-month-old vaccines, he developed this fever, and I kept taking him into the emergency room, and all they told me to give him was Tylenol. And I thought to myself, there's something wrong with this. I was told that these were safe and effective, but that's all the information I was given. I don't remember having to have vaccines like this as a child, and I didn't want to do it when he was 12 months old, him, him and his sister. And I was thinking... Every day I'd wake up in the morning thinking to myself, Lord, am I wrong about this? And I kept seeing other children, just a few, not like my son, but who were affected or had other types of disabilities. i never forget, I was watching TV one Sunday, and this particular woman came on TV, and she talked about how she cured her son of his autism diagnosis and I thought to myself you can cure a child of this diagnosis because I had never heard that before after getting his his diagnosis and so I found her I recognized where her house was because New Orleans is a little place and I grew up in the vicinity where her house is and I looked her up because we still had white pages back then and her name was given on the screen and I knocked on her door she answered the door. I told her who I was. She invited me in. And I went in, and I sat down, and I had a conversation with her. She said, I want you to come to a meeting this weekend. It's going to be at my sister's house. 
I said, sure. I go to this meeting in this very wealthy neighborhood, very wealthy community, one of the most exclusive ones in New Orleans. And when I knocked on the door, they thought I was actually one of the servers. I said, no, I was invited. So I sat down. I listened to this woman give her presentation. I looked around the room, and I noticed that these were a bunch of wealthy, wealthy women who could afford to pay $1,000 a week to fly people in to work with their children. I couldn't afford that. So I found the one woman who was very friendly. I talked to her, and I asked her exactly what happens when this person comes in. Are they training you or someone else? She said, oh, no, I, I can't perform this with my own child. She's training others that I will potentially hire. I said, I tell you what, why don't you hire me? I will work for your work with your son. Let's barter this service. You don't have to pay me if you allow me to be trained by these people you're paying to come in. And sure enough, she did it. And I telling this story because this is what I want parents to understand. Nothing is impossible. Never think a thought in your head is impossible. What you seek, you will find. If you knock on doors, eventually the right door will open. And if you ask, you will receive answers. Put yourself out there. Be willing to be vulnerable because the greatest gift and heritage that you've brought into this world is your child. That's what you leave behind. When you leave this world, you will not take any material item with you, but you will leave behind the people that you've birthed or that you've adopted and you've cared for. And that is worth everything. I love that passion, Sheila. That is so incredible. And um, I trust that a lot of people hearing this are really going to deepen into their own journey because who is going to love their children more than the parents? There isn't one. So I wanted you to also speak to, Sheila, I know that you've had a, a tragic life. I mean, I've, I've listened to your story several times, and it makes me weep. And the very fact that you are standing here before us, it's, it's a miracle. You are a miracle worker. And I wanted you to touch on, the two documentary films that you have been a part of, one was Vaxxed and the other one, Medical Racism, the New Apartheid. Could you share what being a part of those two documentaries did for you and what was your intention and your goal of being a part of those for the people? When I got approached to give my son's story because I had met Andy Wakefield in Austin. He happened to be in Austin during the same time I was displaced from Hurricane Katrina. And I didn't know he was in Austin. I just happened to take my children to a movie theater, a sit-down movie theater where you could buy food and what have you. And when we walked, after buying the tickets and we walked in, he was standing right in front of the theater. I couldn't believe it. I made a beeline to him. And I told him my story when I was 2005, what had happened to my son. And he was polite. He nodded. And I asked him, I said, do you think the double dose of that MMR with those other three vaccines is the cause of this happening to my son? He says, there's a strong possibility. You should 
see Dr. Kreisman at Thoughtful House. And I told him, yeah, we have an appointment with him. I do plan to see him. Never saw him again. In 2014, I get a phone call, early 2014, that there was a whistleblower, and his name was Dr. William Thompson, who came out and said that the MMR damaged all of the black boys who had that vaccine before 36 months in a test, in a research test that the CDC was doing in in Atlanta, Georgia. And I said, what? He said, yes. And I want your story. And how he got my number, I told the story so much until a friend of mine, who's also a writer and a friend of his, he was sitting down talking to him at the publisher one day. And he said, I met this African-American mother of twins. One's damaged, one's not. One had the shots and one didn't, the MMR. Do you happen to know who that could be? Because I'd like to interview her. And he said, sure. And my friend called me, James Grunner, and he said, Andy Wakefield wants to speak to you. I said, why? He said, because they found the whistleblower, and he told me. I said, okay. Well, I talked to him. I didn't expect for him to call me that evening, but he called immediately. And I said, well, okay. I, You know, James told me about the whistleblower. He said, yes, it's more detailed, and he gave me more details. And he said, but I would like to come and see you and record your story, if you're okay with that. I said, why? He said, because we're going to raise the legal funding for Dr. Thompson's subpoena. He's going to be subpoenaed. And I told him at that moment, he'll never be subpoenaed, but I'll be glad to give my story because I'd given it to news outlets all over New Orleans. Every last one of them, they would come and mock me, make fun of me. I would tell these doctors I get blacklisted from offices. I didn't care. I knew what had happened to my son. I was looking for answers. And I asked him, well, when do you want to come? He said immediately next week. I said, okay. So him and Polly came. They spent eight hours listening to the story. And that five minutes became vexed. But in that whole year, he took that story along with the other parent stories that were in there, and he fundraised for Thompson. And then in 2016, a year later, February of 2016, I get a phone call from him because that circulated all of 2014 and 15. And he said, Sheila, you're not going to believe this. I said, what? He said, I met Robert De Niro, and we're going to take all of those clips and create a movie, a documentary, and it will be called Vax. And I want to know if you're okay with us using your story. I said, well, sure. I thought you were raising the money for Thompson. He says, we still are. We expect to get him before Congress. I said, okay. I feel vindicated whether you get him there or not. I just needed the vindication and the answer to my prayer that it was, in fact, those vaccines. And that's when I got my answer. And it became a documentary. And in the interim, he called me again. He called me a couple of months later. He said, we're supposed to have um, our screening in New York. I said, are you sure? I don't think that's going to happen. At Tribeca, he said, yes. You know, Andy, I really don't think it's going to happen. He said, I think it's going to happen. So this is America. 
I said, okay, let's go for it. Well, it didn't happen. But he called and asked me to come to Compton and to speak. And it was a large audience. And after I spoke in Compton, then he asked me to speak again and again and again. And I followed him and I followed Polly. And I started speaking out to a bigger and a larger audience because the only audience I was speaking to was, as I said earlier, where I had my footprint. And my footprint was from New Orleans to Texas, Houston, Sugar Land area where I am. And I spoke and I spoke and I spoke to parents and I talked to parents. I helped to educate parents on how to educate their children and pull them out of these school systems. I taught them how to live sustainable and to do um, specialized diets on a budget because I thought that was important. I taught young women how to single mothers, how to band together and keep their babies out of daycare centers and to work as a co-op so that we could do this. And this is how I spent all of those years between the school and doing all of this and even running a summer camp. And as a result of how much VAX took off, I was approached to tell my son's story again in medical racism. But by this time, I was being interviewed by news outlets all around the world and they would fly in just to mock me and make fun. But I've never been afraid of being vulnerable, as I said, and putting myself out there. As long as I know the truth and I can stand in my truth, I could care less how people mock me, scorn me, or talk about me. Because there may be one person who hears my truth, and that truth may be enough for them to realize they're standing in that self-same situation and to change the trajectory of how they operate within their community, within their homes, and how they care for their children. Vax was never supposed to be made into a film. When Andy Wakefield and Polly Tommy came to my house, and the only reason why they knew me is because I'd been so vocal. I was telling my son's story because I was looking for help. I wanted to know if there was someone else who had a child that this happened to. I couldn't understand at the time, why was my son so profoundly affected? I didn't know early on that he also had mitochondrial disease, which is really a serious condition. And I was told by the geneticist that he would not live his teens. And if he did, he would not live his 20s. He would have a colostomy bag on his side, a port for feeding, feeding tube and that he would never be a viable human being. He doesn't have a port. He doesn't have a feeding tube. doesn't have a colostomy bag. He uses the bathroom like anyone else. He can run a little bit. He laughs. He's jovial. He's healthy. And that's years of biomedical intervention. And I told that story so much. And this is how great our God is. When I ended up, my family and I ended up homeless, I had many places I could go because I started getting calls from all over. I never knew anyone knew I'd done that school. I did not know it. I had a good friend who wrote an article about me and told my story and what had happened. So I started getting calls from people all over the country. We will sponsor you to come here, here, and here. Thoughtful House at the time where Dr. Kriegsman was working, said, 
we'd like to sponsor you to come here. We've got a church who wants to sponsor you, All Saints Episcopal Church. And I chose, I prayed about it, and I chose to take my family to Austin. Now, it was a hard trip because I was so sick myself. I had to get on steroids just to keep functioning because my body was just attacking me from within. My husband had developed pericarditis, and he was on a gurney outside uh, in a hospital outside of the emergency room in Baton Rouge. Finally, the doctor told me, I said, I want to take him out of here, and I need to take him tomorrow. Now, mind you, my children were scattered in uh, Zachary and St. Francisville, and here I I am waiting for the doctor. At midnight, he finally comes, and he says, yeah, I'll sign the papers, take him out because I'm stretched thin. I'm only one cardiologist in this area and I'm working between here and the strip mall. So the next day I get my husband out of hospital, I pack my children into the car and we make that long arduous journey to Austin, Texas. It was so ominous because there was nobody on the road. There were only white trucks going into New Orleans. I will never forget that. And there was nobody leaving out. And I get to Austin, the pastor of this church is waiting for me. We take my husband to Mercy um, Hospital, move my children and myself, we move into um, an apartment that they rented for us for three months. And these strangers, Christian strangers said, I'll wait with your children while you go take care of your husband. And I told them, no, not tonight. I've checked him in. The doctor won't be there until tomorrow. So if you don't mind coming back tomorrow, that'll be good. So they came back. I go back to the hospital, and the cardiologist said, you got him here just in time. If he had, they were giving him the wrong medication, and if he had stayed one more day, he wouldn't have made it. I knew at that moment my idea to leave the area I was in and bring my family to Austin was the right decision. So during that time, um, it was tough. It was tough because we couldn't get a FEMA trailer to go back to New Orleans. My mother had become so ill, and I felt like I needed to really get back to Louisiana, but I couldn't get back to Louisiana. So we ended up staying, and we had to go to this big center. And in the center, they were calling us refugees, which was, I couldn't believe in my own country I was born into, that I never took a governmental handout. I always worked hard and was taught to work hard for a living, to speak to us like that. It was the most embarrassing thing that I've ever experienced. It was humiliating. So when I left, they said, well, Your husband, he had just retired from the military, 26 years in the Coast Guard. And when we got to the area where they were giving out food stamps, he said, your retirement is $10 over the limit, so you don't qualify. So when my husband and I went back to the apartment, the pastor was waiting for us. And he said, what did they say? I said, it was so humiliating. I told him what they said. He said, no problem. 
Well, that Sunday, he came back with a handful of cards, food cards. And every week, the church sent us all of these cards, food cards. And then I started getting packages from around the country. When the three months was up, we moved to another apartment because FEMA decided to pay half the rent while we were in Austin so they wouldn't give us a trailer. And so we did that. And mind you, the retirement wasn't that big for a family of five and one with special needs. But this is what I'll tell you. If you have fear of anything, pray to overcome that fear because you're empowered. Through prayer, you are empowered. I didn't get food stamps like everyone else, and most people were getting five, six, seven hundred dollars worth of food stamps. In the two years that I was there, I ended up with forty thousand dollars in food cards. I added them up. That's how much God loved me and my family. He will write what you think is impossible. But you've got to have the faith to get out there and put yourself out there and believe. Walk by faith, not by your sight. We've been taught in this country to believe in what we can see, what's tangible, what we can hold. That's not God's way. That's man's way. And that's why you've got so many running in fear, taking that jab that hasn't been vetted properly and killed every animal in the study. Pick yourself up and realize that all that you feel you know through the local news channel, maybe even where you serve God, could be wrong. And learn information for yourself. The Bible tells us to study to show ourselves approved, a workman with nothing to be ashamed of. That is not just for a religious leader. That's for each and every one of us. The Bible speaks to us individually, and that's how we are to conduct ourselves. Don't take anything at face value, especially when it comes from a human. God's word is a living word. That whole book is a living book. Believe in your ability. Believe in your intuition. I always say your intuition is the voice of God speaking to you. And when you go against it, you make these awful mistakes. Because I remember telling them at the hospital when I gave birth to my last three children, no, no vaccines. Not that I knew anything about them. I just didn't want them. Not at birth. And when I took my babies in for their five-month visit, they had all of these vaccines they wanted to line up. And I said, no, I'm only going to take one. Which one is the most important? And even then, my instinct was saying, no, don't do it. No, don't do it. But I felt like I didn't have enough information to make the right choice for my children because every parent wants their child to be healthy and to be whole. And we've been brainwashed to believe that someone who holds an expensive piece of parchment paper with an MD behind their names can tell us what that is. No. Mm -mm. We have something called mother's wit because when they clip a baby off your umbilical cord, a little bit of that baby stays in you. And that's why a mother can feel certain things. And this is 
No shade to fathers, but I'm talking from a mother's perspective. Hone in on that voice within you right now where you are. No matter what has transpired in the past, we all have the opportunity to make today better and tomorrow even greater. But we've got to start. There's always hope and there's always something that you can do to make that happen. Sheila, that was so powerful. I don't even have a comment to share at this moment because that can be taken right to the bank. Powerful. Spirit has really called you to, to be a voice, to be a voice for what's possible in a world of impossibilities. I just like to give people hope. So many people think they're helpless and they're hopeless and they view these children as a burden, those with these disabilities. And what we're going to see going forward are so many disabilities, especially those who decide to inject their 5 to 11-year-olds and even their 11 to 20-year-olds. There's no, no window that closes where you're not going to see an injury. Okay, hold it there. We're going to break again. You're listening to the other side of the news. And our guest tonight is Dr. Sheila Ely. And the show is called Leave Those Kids Alone. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Dr. Andrew Kaufman, Natural Healing Consultant. Welcome to the other side of the news, where they're open to hearing the truth and take it seriously. The first thing you got to look at is the methods, like nothing else matters, because that's where they describe the experiment. So then you can decide if what you can conclude from the experiment, (laughs) right? Mm -hmm. And that's really, really important because... You know, they make false claims and people don't understand how to use statistics and all these things could be misleading. What I notice that they do now is they put the methods section at the very end. And in some papers, it's in a separate document that's like an addendum. So in other words, they just present the the results and conclusions and an introduction section and nobody looks at the methods. But that's the most important thing, because if you don't know that, you don't actually know what they did. Because, you know, there's a lot of art to experimental design. And, uh, you know, some people can be very clever about it. Some can be very elegant about it. But there's also, like, many ways that things can be fudged. And there's books on this, right? Like one of Bill Gates' favorite books, How to Lie with Statistics. Then, you know, you have the John Ioannidis article, which is one of the most highly cited papers where he says more than half of all published research is false, right? So, mm-hmm. but, but how many scientists, when they go to read a paper, say there's a 50% chance that this article is false, so I better read it really carefully, right? They don't do that. But all this clinical research, it's really just, it's really marketing. That's what it is. It's not actual research. With the vaccine trials, you know, it's just they basically designed it exactly perfectly to show what they could say. You know, that bogus 95% effectiveness. uh, That's the, the relative risk 
reduction of having a test and it's not even the overall risk reduction would be like 0.4%. But they describe it that way. It's a statistical trick where they could say 95%. And they also defined the outcome and then they had to wait seven days after the vaccine. But all the people who got sick within that seven days didn't count. You know, all kinds of uh, tricks. They're, they're, they're experts at this. They know, yeah. they know what they're doing, and, and it's really hard to even figure out what they're doing. And welcome back to the other side of the news. You're listening to Sheila Ely, and our show is called Leave Those Kids Alone, co-hosting our Annette Driscoll, Darlene Undy, and myself, Kinzia. So, Darlene, was there something you wanted to add? So, Sheila, hmm? that last Wednesday, the pop-up clinic for the 5 to 11-year-olds started here. So, the first children were jabbed here in British Columbia. So, we're, you know, it is horrible. So, you know, we're doing our awareness. Yes. Well, I hope that parents will stop, think, and as they say in a fire, roll before they decide to do that and hear what we have to say. And I hope we can make a difference. I really do because that's all we have is each other. We're servants for one another. And that's the best that we can give and do is inform and put it out there. The truth that is. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, I think you really are a voice for that because so many parents do feel like, Oh, well, how would I do homeschooling and, I don't have the power. It's already decided. I see that all, all, especially where we are now and where I am in the Bay Area, California. Oh, my gosh. And nobody questions anything. It, and it's so weird because back in the day, you know, when the hippies ruled, it was like question authority. And now where did that go? They just disappeared. Right. We've been taught to be obedient little soldiers and so that they can enslave us without calling it that and do the new form of Holocaust without mm-hmm. being so blatant about it. So, Sheila, before you go, are there any thoughts or insights you'd like to share with our audience? I would just like to encourage each and every one of you. We are the people, and there is power in one. That one is you. We're so grateful you came on to the show. The insights you've shared have been uplifting and illuminating and reveal what is possible when we listen to our intuition and we use our voice to stand up for our rights. We all benefit. Thank you so much, Sheila Lewis Easley. We look forward to bringing you back on. Next, we're going to bring on our fabulous Canadian reporter and co-host for the night, Darlene Undy, with a report from up north. Darlene? So, as always, it's such a great pleasure to have the opportunity to share the latest and greatest of uh, Communist Canada. And uh, there's actually so much happening in Canada right now. I'm, I want to get through a lot of this information um, so that the listenership can really understand what is happening in this part of the world. So um, from Truth11, I mean, if we, truth11.com, if we, you know, couldn't be a part of the Ghislaine Maxwell world, I mean, where would we be? 
So um, I wanted to let everybody know we start off with some great news, of course, that, you know, Epstein, former pilot, named the high-profile passengers during testimonial of the Canadian Prime Minister pedophile Justin Trudeau Castro amongst uh, the other guests such as Bill Clinton, Prince Andrew, Kevin Spacey. So these people are being named and they are going down. So uh, that's from truth11.com. I wanted to let everybody know that um, Pierre Trudeau, he is going down. Um, Pardon me, Justin Trudeau is going down because uh, there's just, that guy is so dirty. It's, it's, Ridiculous. And then, of course, this is a little bit dated, but December 1st, um, Toronto Sign Media Solutions, Inc., Mr. Joseph Kazar, uh, tendered his resignation as uh, Chief Executive Officer, effective November 21st. And then, of course, the Canadian Press, December 3rd, the head of Saskatchewan Health Authority, Scott Livingston, leaves his position as CEO for reasons unknown. So when you've got people leaving their high positions, you know, that something great is happening. So I'm certain everybody's been hearing about the uh, flooding that's been happening in British Columbia. And, uh, you know, there's been a lot alluding to uh, deep uh, underground military bases um, in this area. And I'm really going to encourage people uh, to do some studying about that because these are uh, controlled or were controlled by the cabal. And uh, more to be heard about that from Gene Decode, but, um, you know, areas around Abbotsford, um, Sonar, Yarrow Township, um, they were all hit hard, but um, now Abbotsford North Dyke and the Nooksack River South Dyke um, failed, but now some of the highways have reopened, so Highway 3 from 5A to Princeton is closed. And what's really interesting is that 5A highway is the only way um, out of the lower mainland um, beyond Hope, British Columbia. So it it seems like this flooding was very strategic and uh, really isolated a lot of people. So, um, you know, some of the highways are still not open, but, um, you know, the water's receding and some of the rain has stopped. But um, the, the communities of British Columbia have really come together and what I wanted to share about the coming together is there's a very phenomenal woman there's controversy around her but her name is Queen Romana who is taking matters of the Kingdom of Canada into her own hand and she is known as um, Her Majesty um, of the Kingdom of Canada and what she's done is that she's brought 90 boxes collected by volunteers in Ontario 76 from Quebec and aid boxes arriving from we the people, not from NGOs, not from politicians, not from foundations, not from advocates, uh, anything like that. You know, and because of Queen Romana's great work and her organization, the highways have been fixed. You know, the displaced have been looked after. There's actually uh, grocery threads for people all over the world who are needing food and assistance. And so this is a woman that is getting things done. So there's a lot of controversy around her, but I have never seen such action of things to be put together for people um, taken care of by Good Samaritans and how she's getting things done. Uh, She also got hay for the animals and uh, found a way to have those to have them transported across the provinces of British Columbia, Manitoba, Saskatchewan, and Alberta. And she got the funding from, again, We the People in a matter of minutes. 
And uh, again, no politics, everybody looking after their fellow man and woman. So, you know, it's really remarkable about the, the love and care that's happening in, in Canada right now. And then, of course, we heard about the issue of uh, southern B.C. having radiation issues. And uh, this is a quote from Renee Jaspers. But um, it says, no meters were going off, no sirens since Fukushima. The uh, radiation sensors have been shut off, supposedly to stop mass hysteria. And uh, people have actually been encouraged to go to monitoring stations around here and follow radiation protocols. And again, um, you know, Gene Decode has done a lot of information to help people get the uh, help they're, they're needing. And again, here shows up, you know, Her Majesty Queen Romana who ordered uh, distribution of iodine and potassium iodide for those potentially affected by radiation so that the, all the residential homes, the industrial businesses, commercial businesses in, in BC and all across the Kingdom of Canada were taken care of. And then there's the medical aid boxes that were created and suitable for all animals and livestock as well. So um, more to be heard about this incredible woman called Her Majesty, I am Queen Romana. And then recently, I had the pleasure of traveling with a remarkable doctor by the name of uh, Dr. Daniel Negase, and he shared some very troubling statistics. Uh, he had spoken with three doulas who had reported 13 stillborn deaths in 24 hours at the Lionsgate Hospital in Vancouver, British Columbia. Stillborn deaths happened in Waterloo, Ontario, and again in Britain. So from his medical background, Dr. Nagase said, this should be a state of emergency with an investigation. He said he has done 120 deliveries in two months with not one stillborn. And these statistics should be a red tape, but coroners are ignoring it. And uh, Dr. Nagase was in uh, the Kelowna area and he actually approached the coroner and asked about the data, about the COVID deaths, and was basically told point blank that that information wasn't available, you know, and uh, that we're involved in investigation, but again, no investigations were being revealed. And the coroner got annoyed by, uh, you know, Dr. Nagase's continued questions, and they refused to give him any information. And uh, we are going to be uh, serving this uh, coroner with uh, notice of liability. So let me talk to you about the effectiveness of these notice of liabilities because I've been very involved in the process of getting these uh, documents out um, into the school districts. And these are through uh, Action for Canada. And I know we're very familiar with Tanya Gaw, the founder of Action for Canada. And uh, right now what's happened because of the great work of the notice of liabilities is that 22 of 60 school districts in British Columbia have stepped down from mandating vaccinations for school staff. So that is remarkable. That's a great big win for us. Now, if we head off to the far east side of Canada, New Brunswick, uh, they've got some really uh, demonic things happening out that way because uh, in New Brunswick, they're bringing in mandates where the grocery stores can actually have the ability to deny people from having the ability to purchase food if they're not double jabbed. So this is so draconian. Uh, we've got to get this dealt with immediately. And two more things I'd like to really mention before I bring this to a close. I mean, there's really so much I could speak to. 
Uh, the Vancouver police have decided not to mandate the jab for their officers, citing disruption in police services for a number leaving to go to other forces that are, you know, where they're not forcing the mandate. And in between all that, Rocco Gladi is finalizing his injunction and hoping it's going to be a great Christmas present for all Canadians. In closing, I wish to send out prayers to the children because November 24th in Canada, it was mandated that 5 to 11-year-old children could be jabbed under the authority of Health Canada. And last Wednesday, December 1st, the first child was jabbed and pop-up vaccination clinics are being set up all throughout the cities of Canada. And so we really want parents and concerned citizens to do their best to educate people that children's immune systems are robust and that they do not need to be part of the jab scenario. So I want to remind everyone that I recently was privy to a conversation with Dr. Paul Alexander who reminded us again, parents, please know that children have the most robust immune system and that they do not need to be a part of this forced vaccination. And the best Christmas gift you can give to yourself and your family is to live life fully. Thank you, Darlene, for that in-depth report. It's amazing what's going on up there. And it seems like such an a contrast, such an extreme contrast of things going great and things going really terrible. But what I see and what I'm inspired by is the Canadian spirit because individuals such as yourself are standing up. And as you do it, it helps the rest of the world to do it. So keep up the wonderful work you're doing on behalf of humanity. And guess what? We're coming to the close of the show. We thank you all for joining us tonight. And we hope that this show and all the other shows that we've produced are uplifting your life and giving you new ways of looking at things, ways to secure your freedom, your sovereignty, and your sanity. We wish you all a good night. We don't need no false control. No dark sarcasms in the classrooms. Teacher, leave them kids alone. Just 
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.